KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. This pandemic and the economic fallout of the last six months, it's really stretched a lot of people to the breaking point. I'm sure you've heard sayings like, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I don't know how real that is, but I do think that you can learn a lot about people by how they react when they're confronted by really tough circumstances. So a team of doctors based in Philadelphia wanted to see if that thing, how people are reacting and overcoming their situation right now, can be studied or measured. I wanted to find out what they discovered and how it's even possible to you know, scientifically quantify something as abstract as resiliency. So I asked Dr. Ron Barzilai to come on the podcast. He's a physician scientist at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and the lead author of The Resiliency Report. We're talking today because I was told about a resiliency report that uh, you're working on with a couple of other doctors. To start off, can you break down how this all kind of got started and what made you want to study something like resiliency? And I mean, was it kind of intimidating at the beginning because resiliency isn't something that you can just measure? We have been studying or interested in studying resilience in our lab for a couple of years now, and we were working on a tool that will enable us to measure traits that are associated with and that predict resilience way before COVID came along. So in my day-to-day work, I'm a child psychiatrist, a research scientist, and I'm interested in what makes some kids who grow up under developmental stress and what makes some of them become susceptible to develop serious psychiatric condition, like suicide, for example, And what makes others resilient? And what explains this variability between how people take stressful events that happen to them? So we were working on a tool that is scalable for large studies that people can just, you know, answer a couple of questions and can really tap into what makes someone resilient. And then we started our study in CHOP, started to bring people in, and then March came along and COVID came along out of nowhere. So after the first uh, couple of days of shock, okay, what are we going to do now? We can't go in the lab. We can't recruit participants. Kids don't go to school. Everything is so crazy. Uh, We're thinking, well, if we are interested in studying resilience, so this is a horrible thing that's going on now, but it's a huge opportunity to study resilience. And very soon after the lockdown in March, we, you know, I, I found myself saying to myself, well, resilience is so critical these days when people need to deal with so many changes in their lives. But for us, as scientists who are interested in understanding resilience, we have the moral obligation to study resilience right now as it's happening. So then we said, well, we developed this tool um, and we have it ready. We just, you know, it was just by chance that our paper describing the resilience survey was published in February 2020. So we then said, okay, so let's see how we can reach out to people now during COVID and see whether it actually captures resilience. 
So we moved very quick into an, an action mode. And I was very, I, I mean, I am, I'm blessed and privileged to work with an amazing team of people from the director of the Lifespan Brain Institute, where I rock at Chop and Pen, Professor Raquel Gu, and with, uh, with my own uh, lab manager, Grace Di Domenico, we worked like a very small, but very uh, driven team. And in a couple of days, we managed to put together the survey that we developed to use in a lab when people actually come in to develop an online portal. We bought a domain. We called it COVID19resilience.org. And then we said, okay, we're going to put it online and let's see what people give us back. From then onward, it became like a small, uh, I would call it a startup company, less of an academic venture, because my friends and family who I talked to them about the idea to study resilience, they said, well, you know, because we know you, we will fill the survey out. But if it weren't for you, I will not take it. I mean, I have other things to do, other things on my plate. So we thought, okay, what can we do to make it worthwhile? And then we said, well, we know that resilience is composed of these multiple so-called dimensions that we actually probe for in our questionnaire or our survey. So let's try to give people feedback on how they are. And we know that people, I mean, I know myself and I know from others as well, sometimes, you, you know, you just, you Google something or you just, you read the news and you see find out about yourself how are you in that and that so you know sometimes it's nice so what what we did is we we made our team larger and we got uh, dr lily brown who directs the pen center for anxiety to be a part to become a part of the team and we very carefully um, designed an interactive feedback that people will get when they fill the survey that will give them feedback on how they do now. Part of it was about the resilience profile and part of it was about questions that we added on anxiety, depression, sleep, insomnia, well-being. And actually, we're very proud of the so-called product we ended up with. I mean, I call it a product because, as I told you, it was an experience of, of doing something very, very fast that will be attractive enough for people to dedicate the 15 minutes of their time because, again, everyone, everyone is busy, especially when these crazy things are going on. So at the end of the day, within, I would say, uh, two weeks from thinking of, okay, this is time to practice resilience, but also time for us to study resilience, we had this amazing uh, portal or website which you go on, we got an IRB submission to get the permission to, to do it as a, as a study in human participants through a University of Pennsylvania. So someone goes in, if they like the idea, they do the, get started and then they sign a consent to start the study. And then they just do it. And what is it that they do? They fill a very user-friendly 21-item questionnaire on resilience items or questions or factors and then they get immediate feedback and it tells them how are you compared to others and I, I remind you that we already developed this tool in our lab before so we had a pretty good understanding of what type of responses go with people who are 
so-called more resilient, meaning they have less um, symptoms in terms of mental health symptoms. And after they get the feedback, then we ask people also, how are they doing over the last two weeks? And we ask some questions about the levels of anxiety, about their levels of uh, like depressive symptoms and how are they doing in terms of their sleep. And then on that part, we also give people immediate feedback. And this feedback, I mean, I am, I'm a psychiatrist, so my, I'm not pretending that a, a so-called algorithm can give you everything. But the feedback that we do give is based on cognitive behavioral therapy principles. It was done, uh, I, I, I just introduced Lily Brown, I mean, with people who, with, with a lot of expertise. And we were very proud to hear after we launched it and it went live from people. And after I got, you know, I got feedback from family and friends. Yes, they were happy with me, but then my family and friends. But I was mostly happy to get an email from someone who took the survey from another place in the world and wrote to me, you know what? I really like the feedback. I see all these questionnaires online all the time, but then I do them and that's it. Merely a thank you at the end. But here I actually got something in return. I learned something about myself. I found it nice. I mean, again, I'm not postulating it was a therapeutic intervention, but still people liked it. Uh, they liked it to an extent that so far we have more than 7,000 people who took it. And we're not paying them to take it. So, I mean, I'm saying people actually, I think, benefit from it, which is great. Um, and that's the long answer. Yeah, and that that in itself is kind of like, as you were saying, you know, people wanted something in return. I think of those Facebook quizzes that people used to take, you know, find out what coffee you should be drinking from Starbucks. And people take it because... It tells them something about their personality or or things like that. Um, can you tell me what kind of things you have been seeing from the studies? Are you guys looking at the data right now? And are you maybe surprised at anything that you're seeing so far? Yeah. So first, it's a great opportunity for me to say that we are still collecting data. And one of the things that we're interested in is seeing how the levels of resilience, stress and mental health, you know, how they go, how they develop throughout the pandemic. But so far, we managed to analyze quite a lot of data. And from the data we analyzed that was collected between April and May, 5,000 people, we do have some very, I would say, uh, consistent findings that have to do with what stresses out people these days and how are they doing generally. So I can tell you that overall, our, I would say most uh, consistent finding is that uh, people are more stressed about others than they are about themselves. And specifically, we can say that people are more worried about their family contracting COVID and even about unintentionally infecting others with COVID than about uh, contracting COVID themselves, which was a bit surprising for us at the beginning. But then we saw that more and more people take the survey and more and more people give the same responses. So we thought, well, this, th there must be something into it. And again... I, I'm, I'm happy to see now that when other labs are publishing data on stress during COVID, they also show a similar trend. I mean, you know, everyone uses different questions, different metrics, but the overall finding is that people are 
more concerned about others. Another interesting thing is that at least in April and May, and again, this is from 5,000 people, mostly from the U.S., but we have more than 50 countries, people from 50 countries who took it. People were as concerned, even in April, about the financial aspects as they were about actually contracting it, which for me at the beginning was a bit surprising because... I mean, I don't know now if we can remember the times before COVID or the time when COVID came out of nowhere, but it was different by then. And people, I think, were, I mean, they, I, I would have guessed that the health concerns will be significantly higher than the money concerns, but they weren't. They were similar. One of the things we are interested in is how this is going uh, to change or not over time. And this is one reason we are still collecting data. It's an, we don't know the answer for that yet. So this is number two. So first is people worry more about others than about themselves. Second is people are worried about money and finance to a similar extent as they are about contracting the virus. Third thing is that um, as expected by literature, women worry more than men on average on every domain, except for, you want to take a guess, where women worry as much as men or men worry as much as women? Uh, is it finances? Yeah, you got it. You got it. So only on finance, men worry as much as women. On the other worries, like getting it, family getting it, infecting others, dying from it, uh, women worry more. Uh, which again, is not big news, it would have been expected, but it was nice to see because it validates the, the quality of the data. Another thing that we saw, because we had so many people and we developed, I'm a, I'm a child psychiatrist, so I was very mindful to make this uh, child-friendly and we, and we made it appropriate and we made a child-friendly version from age eight and above. I mean, it was, it was challenging to get kids to take it. So we don't have so many kids in the cohort, but we have a very nice lifespan perspective. People from age eight to age 91. So we have a lot of people throughout the lifespan. So we found that generally the older you are, the less stressed you are. Which makes sense to some extent, because you can say, well, you know, people who are more mature, older, you know, they, they've seen a couple of things. They've been through some stressors. They've been uh, maybe not a pandemic, but maybe through war, things like that. Whereas young people, maybe, you know, it's the first time this something of such a magnitude happens to them. But then again, you know, that, I mean, as a physician uh, and you see the news and you see that, you know, it's the, the virus itself is substantially more uh, dangerous or deadly to older people. So maybe you wouldn't expect that older people will be less stressed, but they are. Um, it, to some extent, the older people were more concerned about health compared to the younger people. But even them were more stressed about their family, which was very consistent to see. So generally, people were more worried about others, uh, family or infecting others. Another finding. Um, regarding the mental health of people, because so far I was speaking in terms of stress and the questions are articulated in the survey in a manner that people 
we thought will not feel uncomfortable answering them. So it wasn't about stress. It was we use and, and it wasn't about depression or about anxiety. We use softer definitions, like how worried you are. Something that makes it much more generalizable and easy for you to answer frankly about, without worrying. What does it say about me? Just how worried you are. So beyond the questions on worry. We did use two measures that are used in general medical studies to probe for a clinical anxiety and depression. And we found that the rates of anxiety and depression were uh, higher than reported in a so-called and, and normal times, non-COVID times. We found that if you were a healthcare provider, it did not change the level of stress and your mental health well-being compared to non-healthcare provider, which was another thing that we were a bit surprised because we know from other studies around the world that the, the healthcare providers are especially stressed and are more prone for anxiety and depression, and we did not see it. So, you know, it, it depends how you want to pitch this finding. You can say, well, our healthcare providers are very resilient, even though they're in the front line, they're doing so well. Or you can say, well, the general population is so stressed and worried, so they are as stressed and worried as the healthcare providers. I mean, you know, it, it depends how you, how you think about it. But a long story short, we didn't see any differences, and this was one thing that we were interested in. Maybe not everybody thinks that, but I think that, you know, it's good to hear that people are still good. You know, people tend to think that, you know, people are more selfish now and that people don't have empathy for others. Uh, why, why was it important, you know, to study resiliency and like, why is that an important, unique human thing? You mentioned, you know, linking it to mental health and anxiety when, uh, you know, you guys started with resiliency and kind of built from there. So I will zoom out a little bit for your question. Why is it important to study resilience? I think it's a key understanding that we need to change the paradigm how we look at not just mental health but general health so again as a physician you are being trained to think in terms of risk factors so like i'm a psychiatrist and i see someone in the er so i need in the back of my head to go through the checklist of okay what makes me more worried about this guy or this person in front of me now, in terms of, for example, think of suicide risk, I mean, number one risk factor, number one, uh, like the worst outcome I can think of in psychiatry. So I'm thinking risk, 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 risk factors. You know, it's like, it's trivial that we need to take down the risk factors, but there's also another side to it, which are, what are the resilience factors? And the whole point about studying resilience is that if we understand well enough the mechanisms that underlie what makes some people resilient and other more susceptible, maybe we can prevent both general and negative mental health outcomes through fostering resilience or improving resilience. So this is why it's so important to study resilience. So after talking about the study so long, I'll tell you a little bit how we measure resilience and what did you find in the study in resilience. So... The most recent concepts of understanding resilience is that resilience is not just what is called often as uh, referred to as grit. It's not just how good you think you, you deal with stress when you are being specifically asked about it. Grit or 
let's call it self-reliance, how you rely on yourself to get out of tough situation, is definitely a key component in resilience. But it does not explain everything. And our data supports it as well, because we do ask some questions about grit or self-reliance. But we also ask about other dimensions that have to do with resilience. One of them, for example, is emotion regulation. In simple words, how can you handle your emotions and stay composed in the face of stress? And, you know, in our questions, we get at it with very basic questions. I told you before that we designed it to be compatible with kids. With things like, when I am upset, I know that I will be depressed, for example, how people relate to this sentence. Or when I'm upset, I can still focus on my work, how people relate to this. So emotion regulation, for example, is another key component of resilience. So if you take emotion regulation and you take self-reliance or grit and you put them together, you have already a better grasp of what is resilience. But I want to take it even to a broader context. Resilience is not just things that are intrapersonal or the things that you bring to the table. Resilience is also composed of factors that pertain how you interact with the environment. So we found, for example, that the patterns in your close relationship also tap into resilience. So, for example, if you look at confidence or trust in your close relationships, how sure you are that your relationships with your parents, if you're a kid, or your sibling, or your best friend, or your significant other, we made the, the questions in a way that people can relate to them regardless where they are in their life. So people should think of the most important relationship for them and then answer the question based on this specific relationship. So how confident are you that these relationships will last no matter what? How confident are you that these people will stay with you and will treat you with respect no matter what? So this is the positive aspects of relationships. But we also found that hostility in relationships can also teach us something about resilience, as you can imagine, in an opposite direction. But it also gives you something that adds to understand why some people are more resilient than others. So far, I talked about intrapersonal factors of resilience, self-reliance, emotion regulation, then I mentioned two interpersonal factors of resilience. How you, what's the level of confidence and trust in close relationship at level of hostility in close relationship. And the last factor in, uh, in resilience that we tapped or we probed was a wider context of neighborhood, which takes the environment beyond the most important relationship to a, a little bit of a broader context. And we know from different fields that the environment you grow in definitely plays a role in how you do in life. And how you do in life depends on the, on, on the field you are in. So for me as a psychiatrist, how, how, how is your mental health, for example? Or as a child, how, what's your level of cognition and things like that? So by including in our resilience survey some questions on how someone perceives their neighborhood we found that this also adds to our understanding of resilience. So I guess that by now you, you realize how complex it is to study resilience. 
But the silver linings in COVID that because people need to use the resilience resources because it's such a stressful time for everyone, we hope that data we collect these days will be very beneficial for us to understand resilience in a very global way long after COVID is no longer with us. And we, we all hope that it's going to be sooner than later. Yeah, and that's, that's actually my last question. You know, what is kind of the goal of this report? Like, how do you hope people in the future look back at this study? And as you mentioned, during this super rare time in history? Again, a little bit of a zoom out. There is this concept of precision medicine, not just precision psychiatry, precision medicine. So hopefully in the future... I'll give you an example from medicine. Think of cancer, for example. So these days, there isn't a thing called cancer. I mean, it's, an, it's a family of diseases, and you will get the right treatment for you based on your unique genetic and other components of your cancer. This is precision medicine approach. So we would like to think that in mental health as well, we can use in the future a precision medicine approach. So this means we will know what is your profile of resilience, for example, and we can tailor for you the right interventions that can help you as an individual deal with the stress you are going through. And for us, COVID, we treat it as a stressor. Yes, it's a unique stressor because it's global and everyone goes through it. So, you know, it's unusual. But at the end of the day, we are, as humans, we deal with the stressor right now. And through collecting so much data and analyzing it, and analyzing it also longitudinally, so people who like our survey, they can leave us their email, give us permission, and then we follow them up longitudinally. So we hope to be able to have data, longitudinal data, that can tell us this type of person with this specific unique resilience profile in, in baseline was more or less resilient to develop depression three months or four months or one year later. And we can maybe even get as granular as this kind of, of person, even though he lost his job, God forbid, they lost a close relative. God forbid, I don't know what else happened to them over the year of COVID. They still managed to, after a year in perspective, to say, yes, it was tough, it was horrible, but I am with it. I did not develop severe depression, for example. So the future for us is using the data we collect now to better understand what makes people resilient and to better flag people who are more at risk so that we can offer them treatment that is personalized for them to foster resilience and take the trajectory from that of risk to that of resilience. That's that's great. I know I'm definitely going to take the survey. Did not have the chance yet, but I definitely will. And, I'll, <laughs> and I will pass the information along. Definitely. Thank you so much for joining me today and uh, talking about the Resiliency Report and uh, your ongoing research. Thank you for having me. It was great chatting with you. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.